Blog Talk Radio. platform and welcome Uh, this is a solutions oriented talk radio show each broadcast we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership and this is your host brian perkins Uh, this month we have uh, spent or i should say over the past month we have spent quite a bit of time talking to educators and researchers Uh, in a a variety of of areas uh, about the impact that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic will have uh, in the educational uh, sphere. And um, we, today we have uh, with us um, planned is Dr. Paul Van Hippel. Uh, Dr. Van Hippel, we're waiting uh, to get his call in um, and um, hopefully he'll call in shortly, um, is a researcher on the topic of uh, summer um, learning loss. And uh, he has written a number of articles and made some predictions about uh, when school resumes, what we can expect. And so um, hopefully everything is okay and we're going to get a call back from him in just a moment. Um, but I'm going to spend some time talking to you today a little bit, kind of setting the stage uh, for when he calls in, um, and uh, I think he is here now at a 614 area code. Let's just see. Is this uh, Paul? Is that you? It is. Yes, I apologize for my late arrival. I was homeschooling. <laughs> That's okay. We certainly, certainly understand. I was just about to uh, I, uh, introduce the topic, uh, but glad you're able to join us, and you are, um, I'm sure, home uh, just as so many of the parents that are listening in to us today, trying to homeschool, and and uh, this is this is probably uh, a change. You may have uh, spent some time in the classroom at different levels, but I'm sure this is an adjustment for you as it is uh, so many of us. Yes, adjustment for me and adjustment for my child. Yes. <laughs> For sure. Um, and so, as I was saying, we have with us uh, Dr. Paul Van Hippel, um, who is an expert researcher on uh, the topic of of uh, summer loss and looking at um, uh, learning um, uh, and its impact on in and some of the impacts of school closures. Um, on learning and long-term learning. And so, Paul, we're delighted to have you. And to our listeners who have joined us again uh, today, welcome back. And new listeners, we're glad you've joined us. And, um, you know, I I think in all fairness, this, uh, the audience about um, an article that you wrote that really uh, sparked um, the invitation to have you come in about how we'll uh, the coronavirus crisis affect children learning, and you answer the question in the title unequally. And I yeah. wanted to spend just a little time talking to you a little bit about um, this idea of of you have you've put forward and you've made some pre- 
uh, predictions, but of of what learning loss, um, it how to read some of what we've learned before about learning loss and expect when children are out, and what to expect now that children have been out um, for at least a, you know two or three months. It will be um, before they they get back into school. Um, in the article, and for those of you who want to look it up, it's an article in Education Next. Um, in the article, you you mention that um, historically, school closures of this nature uh, have an impact on children's success, and they're typically negative impacts. Um, you cite as an example when students return to New York City schools after a two-month strike, uh, their test scores were about two months lower, and you talked about other international uh, incidents that happened in uh, Belgium. And um, of course, the one that a lot of people are comparing this to uh, in the U.S. is when the schools closed in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And so I guess the first question I have for you with regard to what is referred to in some some circles as summer loss, but uh, education gains um, that have been made, there's uh, um, kind of a recession in those gains. And um, and so I, my question is, is it kind of a one-for-one? One? So for every month that they're out, they we can expect them to be a month lower than the cohort before them. Um, t- tell us a little bit about what, what that exactly means, what, what the research has shown. Well, um, I mean, I can speak mostly to the summer learning literature, and it's mm-hmm. not very consistent, actually, what the findings from summer learning research are. The, the most pessimistic scenario is the one that you laid out, where uh, kids go backwards as quickly as they go forward. So they finish the summer two, three months behind where they were when school let out in the spring. Um, some studies suggest that, but some other studies suggest that kids go more or less sideways over the summer. They don't, they don't gain much mm. on average, but they don't lose much either. Um, and that's a more optimistic scenario. So there was a recent white paper published by um, uh, um, uh, Megan Kufeld and Beth Tarasawa at the Northwest Evaluation Association and they laid out these two scenarios. The one that's gotten all the press is the disastrous scenario where, where kids mm-hmm. continue to lose skills as quickly as they gain them before school let out. Uh, but they also have a more uh, optimistic scenario where kids basically go sideways. And uh, when schools pick up in September, if they do, mm-hmm. kids are basically where they left off in March. I see. I see. So so best case scenario that they've uh, – been marching in place in terms of their learning, they don't actually lose it, but they don't go forward. Uh, best case scenario. Well, that's that's the best case uh, that uh, from a summer learning perspective. But the situation uh-huh. we're in is a little different than summer learning. Uh, the, the summer learning situation for some kids it's going to be better, and for some kids it's going to be worse. That's why mm-hmm. I highlighted inequality in my title. So um, there are some kids who are in districts or schools that are doing a pretty good job of providing learning online. And in most subjects, for most kids, it's not going to be as effective as face-to-face learning, but kids are learning something. Uh, My, my daughter is, and, and those, uh, those kids are uh, also uh, kids who are going to benefit are kids who have well-educated parents who are economically stable 
so if you're the child of a professor, uh, for example, like my daughter and your, um, uh, your school's doing a pretty good job providing distance learning like my daughter's school is, you'll probably make some progress during the break here. Um, but there are some families that are, are much worse off. The parents are experiencing economic stability, economic instability. Maybe they've lost mm-hmm. their jobs. Maybe helping their kids learn, learn the state capitals just doesn't seem like a priority given all the stress that they're under. Mm-hmm. Um, parents who are less educated, lower income, are less able to support their children's learning under other circumstances. And being in the middle of a, of a, a once in a hundred years kind of depression. Sure. Uh, And and, and pandemic doesn't help in those circumstances. There are also some districts that are doing a much poorer job of providing distance learning. Um, Some some districts, such as Philadelphia and Milwaukee, weren't really providing any distance teaching until last week. And so Mm -hmm. kids were basically out for seven months. So there's tremendous inequality in how kids are experiencing this uh, um, these closures and how much we can really expect them to learn when they come back. Sure, sure. And, you know, I'm going to come back to the points you're making about parents in just a moment. But one of the mm-hmm. first things you talk about also in your article is that ed tech will help, but its impact will be uneven. Um, I've had a few other people on the, the show earlier in the month that have talked about um, the distance learning. And obviously, that's been unevenly distributed, even right within uh, one one district. I uh, was speaking to a, a, a professional yesterday uh, in in Maryland who uh, described in one school district, one county district, where there is on one part in one part of the county technology is is assisting in another just right in the same county. It's not. Uh, it hasn't been rolled out the same. So I think. Uh, in some ways, we we anticipated that uh, the technology, meaning having it in hand, would be uneven. But in one of the points you make is that most ed tech products were meant to supplement school, not replace it. Can you say a little bit about that? Right. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, almost all ed tech products are meant to be a supplement. And uh, we really don't have any experience with the idea that kids are just going to stop going to school and start using Khan Academy and Prodigy instead. This is just not something that these products were to do. And we don't know how, mm-hmm. how well that they're going to work on that. We also are not terribly prepared for this break. If it, if it turned out, if there was some way to foresee what was going to happen and schools were given a few months advance warning to get a, uh, some kind of distance learning plan in place, we'd probably be more effective, but we're really, um, uh, we got thrown in the deep end and some districts were in a better position to respond than others. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. And, and even with, with the, the kinds of, of, of products that are out there, uh, not, it's not evenly distributed um, in terms of availability, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, different products are being used in different districts. Um, the Probably the number one variable is uh, parents and families vary in how good their Internet access has. About mm-hmm. uh, In a 2018 census survey, about one in seven families didn't have any kind of Internet access. It was one in mm-hmm. three among poor wow. families. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we've really got, and in many cases, um, inter, you know, Internet access you can distinguish between having internet access on your phone or some kind of tablet through a cellular network versus having 
uh, a laptop or, or desktop computer with uh, a dedicated line. So it's, um, there, there's a lot of variability in how well kids are able to access distance learning when it's available. And that's one of the things that districts like Philadelphia and Milwaukee wanted to, uh, wanted to get straight before they started. It's, it's a, right. a philosophical difference between districts. Some districts like Chicago, um, you know, they, they got a distance learning plan up and running pretty quickly. They recognized some kids were going to have ac- weren't going to have access, but they figured they'd work that out as it went. And other districts tried to identify the, uh, tried to address the equity of access issue first and didn't give distance learning to anybody for weeks. Sure. Sure. And, and I did read about uh, Philadelphia and, yeah. and so maybe you can say a little more about that, but um, where, uh, as I understand it, Philadelphia didn't do or hasn't done online instruction, and they gave as a reason was the equity issue. You, do you know much about it? Yeah, I wrote a piece about that. Um, Philadelphia was under the impression that was probably mistaken that half the kids in the district didn't have Internet access. Um, if you actually look more carefully at the data that was available to the district and, um, um, and that was available through the census uh, um, survey, the American Community Survey, it looks more like probably a quarter of kids didn't have access to it. So it wasn't mm-hmm. quite as bad a problem as the district thought it was. Uh, but then the district also made this fairly radical decision that it wasn't going to offer distance teaching to anybody uh, until it could offer it to everybody. And so there was mm-hmm. uh, um, a, a long delay. While there was a private donation, the district handed out over 50,000 laptops. Uh, laptops were also distributed in charter schools and private schools. And the district finally started some kind of distance teaching uh, last week. And my understanding is that there were still glitches, as you might expect. I mean, not everybody sure. got online. Things didn't go smoothly from day one. So I, sure. I, I happen to disagree with that, uh, with that decision. And it's because I think about equity a little bit differently. There's mm-hmm. equity within the district, which is what the uh, Philadelphia leadership was concerned about. But there's also equity between Philadelphia and other districts. And if places like Cherry Hill, New Jersey, have a distance learning plan, up and running, uh, those districts which are already ahead of Philadelphia are just going to pull further ahead while Philadelphia is uh, distributing laptops. And so it's really not good for equity when you when you pan back and look at the broader mm-hmm. national or regional picture. Sure, sure, sure. That makes sense. And and back to your point about parents and and the you actually state that parents are unequal too. I think we we do know that there are parents with varying levels of education, um, but, but even among parents that may be college educated um, or, or have graduate school doesn't mean that they are, are teachers. Um, right. And, but I, I think there's less emphasis about that, but more about kind of education attainment. Um, what do you mm-hmm. think that's about? Is it, is it, does it, is it a matter of education attainment or is it really something that is more about the skill sets and understanding uh, developmentally what children should be doing at a different level? Yeah, this is something that I've written about elsewhere um, and that a few others like Dan Koretz have written about, you know, we, we emphasize the gaps between the children of more and less educated parents and the children of higher and lower income parents. But if if you add all that up, parental income, and education, they only explain about 10, 15% of the variance in students' test scores. 85% mm. is, is unexplained, and it probably has mm-hmm. to do with these, 
human capital factors that are harder to measure, how available your parents are, whether they're, uh, uh, you know, whether they're able to present things in a way that seems accessible to a child, uh, what the parent-child bond is like, um, mm-hmm. even among highly educated parents. I mean, if you, you may have parents who are emergency room physicians right now. They're super educated. Yeah. Sure. Uh, they may not be that available to you at the moment because they're working so hard and they're so stressed out. So there's a lot of variables that go beyond, you know, the traditional socioeconomic um, status that affect how well students are able to learn. Sure. And, and you reference the Coleman report, you know, it's, it, it, it's fascinating how much changes, but how much is foundational to our understanding about education. And you referenced the Coleman report to about um, the impact of families. And mm-hmm. you say, we're about to see what happens when we turn up the volume on families and it turns down on schools. Say a little more about that. I thought that was a very interesting um, statement to make. Um, wh- mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen? Well, yeah, so the Coleman Report, just for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with it, it it's a little bit of a, of, I view it as, as sort of the big bang in education research. It was a very provocative set of findings that came out in 1966 in response to, to a survey conducted, uh, commissioned after the Civil Rights Act. And uh, there are a number of findings in it, some of which have held up better than others. But the, 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 the key finding, which has held up very well, is that uh, family characteristics are much more predictive of children's educational success than school characteristics. So almost anything mm-hmm. that you care to look at, how, how educated your, your teacher is, is much less important than how educated your parents are. Uh, how big your class is is much less important than how many siblings you have and, and, and whether you have a single parent or, or, or two parents. These family variables really uh, matter a lot more, mattered a lot more for explaining um, kids uh, test scores and that's um, that was true in 1965 it's been replicated many times so it's mm-hmm. always been kind of it was it was kind of strange to me when um, I found some of the summer learning findings suggested that gaps between more and less the, the children of more and less advantaged parents didn't really seem to grow that quickly during summer and uh, as this crisis started to shape up I realized that there was a big difference which is that a lot of affluent families are not really trying to advance their children's reading and math skills very much over the summer. They're doing other things. What's happening now is different in that um, uh, all, all families uh, are, uh, there's some recognition that they're supposed to be helping their kids learn, and some families are much more able to do that than others. So we're basically uh, families that have the means, whether it's money or education uh, or, or, or a knack for teaching, are being asked to use that. And uh, families that don't have those resources are, um, are are in trouble. In the meantime, schools are not compensating for those differences between families the way that they usually do. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, you know, the the volume's way up on what families can provide, and schools have less of an opportunity to compensate. The volume's down on them. Sure, sure. It, um, it, you you you've also referenced that um, in in this uh, talk that. Um, the summer loss research doesn't necessarily apply. Can you, can you, because I, I, I've also heard a lot of people um, making the comparisons. Um, mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit about why, why, why yeah. is it that it doesn't really apply? Well, it's, I think it's, it's one of the closer analogies we have. Um, you know, the, the other events that we've had like this, like, you know, long school strikes in New York or Belgium or, 
or uh, schools being shut down to a hurricane and uh, on the Gulf Coast. Um, those are really the closest analogies that we have, but they're, you know, kind of isolated points in time. The, the most general uh, um, uh, evidence that we have is this summer learning business, but summer is different. Uh, it's a vacation, and uh, there's, there's no curriculum that's supposed to be delivered in, in summer. There's no distance learning going on. Parents aren't being asked to step up and homeschool. The whole conversation is different. And so I think we're going to see a lot more inequality uh, because of the access to technology issues and, and how well districts are functioning and how, uh, how able families are to support their children's learning. We're going to see a lot more of that during these closures than we typically do during summer. Sure, so sure. It, I, I think that, you know, there are various projections that have been made about how much kids are going to learn or lose. And they've been made with the summer analogy, which I think is the best we can do right now. But when mm-hmm. the veil finally lifts, when kids actually get tested in October or, or whenever it is that schools reopen to any degree, the, the results are going to be a little bit different than the projections, maybe a lot different. Yeah. We just, um, we don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's an interesting point um, to think about, especially the summer being different. And, and you've actually referred to this before about it not being a vacation and so yeah. where you have families that are upper class, upper middle class families aren't necessarily trying to teach their children how to read or build reading skills, math skills during the summer, but that they are doing uh, vacation uh, in a very different way. Um, my my thoughts about that, though, are that there are there are longer term benefits to those kinds of activities uh, that may not be associated with measurable uh, growth from say grade seven to grade eight, but have more to do with um, the, the difference between someone who has been on these family vacations every year um, between K through 12 and someone who didn't do those family mm-hmm. vacations between K to 12, where there are some children who are doing summer math uh, programs or summer coding uh, programs now, um, but that the, the real difference is more a longitudinal difference than a difference that is, uh, this is measured in the short term. Would you, would you think uh, that, that to be so? Yeah, there there are certainly there are certainly children who do um, who do academic enrichment activities during the summer. Uh, some of which would not show up on test scores that are mainly meant to measure uh, reading and language arts skills and the the math curriculum as it's uh, as it's laid out um, in state standards. So what you're talking about coding or maybe learning a foreign language uh, or you know learning to make uh, learning to make and edit videos. These are all things that. Um, uh, upper and upper middle class children sometimes do during the summer um, and they don't show up on standardized test scores, but they can be beneficial later. Um, mm-hmm. that, that said, I think it's a relatively small percentage of children who, who do those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, most, even, most even children of highly educated parents um, um, are less focused on learning uh, academic type skills during the summer. Sure. Uh, I, I thought you, by the way, I thought you were going in a different direction um, uh, with that question, which is, you know, what are the, what are the long-term implications of these kinds of closures? Cause we, you know, we mm-hmm. tend to sort of just look to when schools reopen and, you know, the test scores come in, how bad is it going to be? 
Um, but people don't appreciate how, um, how things are, how things shape up uh, later in life for children who miss a big chunk of school. It's not mm-hmm. good. The, the best research on this was done on the Belgian strike in 1990, where kids missed uh, about two, three months of school. So less uh, comparable to what they're going to miss uh, this semester. And uh, it could get worse if schools are still closed when the fall comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even for, a, for an interruption of that length of time, the kids whose education was, was interrupted, they never really got those two, three months back. And they were Sure. They, they didn't get as far in the Belgian school system. Um, you know, it's, it's different over there, but, you know, effectively more kids got associate's degrees who would have gotten bachelor's degrees. Otherwise, mm-hmm. they didn't make as much money as an adult as adults. And so these things have a way of lasting if we don't do right. to compensate for them. Sure, sure. And and I've I've, I've received a number of questions about um, kind of my prediction on this, um, but where I've been asked. So do we focus on making up the learning that didn't take place or do we focus elsewhere? And I think it's a mixed bag. I think we, we, um, with that in mind, that long-term outcomes may be different and the history um, and, and previous experiences uh, they may be, they may not be the at the same level of achievement um, or and or attainment as the previous cohorts. Um, we have to make informed decisions about that. And so that's what I I think it's a combination because I do think from the social emotional aspect that there are uh, areas where we'll have to focus when children resume school and and at the same time address um, the learning that that might have been um, uh, might have happened in this time period where uh, it didn't happen. And so that those are my predictions. But you had some predictions also about what's going to happen in the fall. Um, so one you thing you said is almost all children will be behind where they would have been had school stayed in in session. Um, and here you're talking about test scores, correct? I was talking specifically about test scores, but you know those have longer term implications. And the, mm-hmm. the the other predictions that I made was that kids from uh, less educated was that there'd be more variation in in test scores, that so the spread between the highest and lowest test scores would be bigger than it ordinarily is, and some of that would have to do with parental education and family incomes and families' economic stability, instability, but some of it would be let harder to explain for the reasons we talked about earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also predicted that the kids who are in districts that have done more to offer distance learning, even if it hasn't been as good as they'd like it to be, will learn more than uh, kids in um, districts that really haven't stepped up to the challenge as effectively. Sure, sure. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think you alluded to this. We, we can see this coming, right? So maybe we couldn't see the pandemic coming as, as far ahead as we would have liked to, but we, we know what happens when kids miss months of school and it's not good long-term. And so we, we really, it's incumbent on us to learn the lessons of history and try to do something to make it up to these kids instead of just following them as an interesting test case to see how, right. how much worse things right. work out for them than it than should have. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, another prediction you had uh, was that the the um, that more kids than usual would need to repeat a grade, especially in kindergarten. Why do you think so? Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that that's a that's a simple. Uh, Michael um, um, 
Petrilli has said that also. It's um, and, and several other people. I mean, if if some kids were who were going to be barely uh, at grade level um, had schools gone through the uh, end of the school year in late May or early June, they're going to be two months behind, and you know there are going to be kids who uh, really didn't get what they were supposed to get out of kindergarten and are not ready for first grade. They're going to be more of those kids than than have been uh, than than there usually are. And we're going to have a little bit of a challenge identifying them because there was no testing in the spring. So we're going to have to do when if, if schools once schools do open under any kind of circumstances where tests can be done, we're going to have to do some formative tests to to really see where kids are and identify kids that uh, need to repeat a grade. Grade repetition is a it's a controversial practice in, in some cases, but if it was ever the right thing to do, it's going to be the right thing to do for uh, uh, more kids than usual this fall. Sure, sure. Well, I, I did like your suggestion that uh, maybe testing can be positioned differently um, to measure where the children need to go um yeah. in some ways you know versus the way we we have used it um uh and and just this past week earlier this week um on monday i had the president of the council of chief state school officers uh on the show and and she mentioned that um, maybe and even suggested that maybe uh te- we'll learn that the testing is not as important, or maybe we'll use it differently. I guess to that, I'd, I'd, I'd just say I'm hopeful, not optimistic. I mean, we've we've been <laughs> we've been around this a long time about what what testing tells us and does not tell us, but it has not changed much about uh, what we choose to do. Um, so, um, well, that, well, this, this really yeah. unfortunate thing has happened. Uh, in the conversation around testing, which is that there's been so much emphasis really since no child left behind or, but, but it started before then on using tests for accountability uh, and that you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to identify ineffective teachers and, and, and failing schools. And at the other end, you're trying to identify teachers who maybe deserve a, a bonus or a raise uh, and a, you know, teachers that are principals that deserve to be fired. And so this is really this kind of stressful atmosphere has arisen around schools, but that's only one application of tests. It's the, um, they also have this important formative aspect, which is that teachers need and principals need to understand where their students are so that they can pitch instruction at the appropriate level. And that's really originally what most tests were, were for. We seem to have lost sight of that. I hear people talking about maybe just canceling standardized testing because it doesn't make sense to hold anybody accountable for anything under the circumstances. And I, mm-hmm. I get that, but tests also have this important function of, of, of letting, letting teachers figure out in the new school year who belongs in first grade and among those who are in first grade, where should they start? So I, sure. I hope the tests are used uh, in that way rather than immediately um, uh, um, reverting to the approach to testing that's uh, made everybody's, that's got everybody's backs up. Yes, absolutely. Well, um, we, we're almost out of time, and I have uh, one caller that has dialed in from 713 Area Code. Caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Um, okay. I really appreciate this topic today. Uh, I guess my question is, when you, when you talk about all these wonderful topics, we can't help but to think about Brown v. Board, about equal or separate, and we know that some districts have just completely dropped the ball on this. 
So at the end of the day, my question is, how do we hold those districts accountable? Because to some extent, those districts are accountable for the gaps that are being created with those particular students. So how, who's going to be the voice for those kids in those type of districts? Yeah, there's there's data being being collected. You know, at the moment we mostly have journalistic accounts of you know how how well this district is responding or or how much this other district is delaying. There are data collection efforts that are going to pull in uh, information on how every district in the United States has um, uh, has responded, at least at a kind of course level, about how long did it take before they stopped just distributing uh, work, PDF worksheets online and started really delivering. Uh, online education. And then we're going to be able to relate that to where those districts test scores are versus where they could have been. Uh, And yeah, I think it would, it would make sense to hold some of those superintendents and other leaders accountable who, uh, who have not, uh, did not do everything they could to make sure that their students continue to learn during the closure. Sure. Sure. I agree. I agree. hundred percent. Well, listen, um, thank you for calling for your, your question. Um, And Paul, I want to thank you for, uh, joining us today, I know, and especially that you you have, uh, I'm sure, your your own work, but you you also are um, teaching today, um, and so I I certainly appreciate you taking time to be with us uh, and and sharing your expertise with us. Uh, just want to also let listeners know that on Wednesday, a week from today, on May 20th. Another show, we have uh, at 2 p.m. researchers from the um, Northwest Education Association who um, do research on a related topic um, that also uh, would fall um, on learning loss. Uh, that show would be about expectations for the future and what educators can do to mitigate um, the time that has been lost um, uh, with our students. Um, so we hope you'll join us. Uh, for that show on Wednesday, uh, the 20th. Uh, so, Paul, again, thank you for taking the time out, um, wishing you the best of, uh, of success um, both today with your teaching and uh, the work you're doing at the uh, University of Texas. And so, um, to the listeners, next time, go well, stay well. Take care.